Welcome to The Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Banker Midweek. This week, your editors are myself, Liz Lumley, and Davide Monagher. Hello, Davide. Hi there. Uh, And we are joined by a special guest, Sylvie Mantharat, Global Senior Advisor to Mazar's Financial Services Practice. Hello, Sylvie. Hi. Hello. Um, And now, as our listeners know, The Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on the Banker site and newsy bits that will influence future stories. But since we have a special guest, we're going to start off with a little bit of a chat with Sylvie about um, all the fun things going on with European regulations, everyone's favorite topic. So, Sylvie, the, the ECB recently called for... Uh, what the newspapers were calling a U.S. style financial market regulator or regulation. What, like, what, what does that mean? And does 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 Europe need that? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. It's a great pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, coming to your question, in fact, it's something that Christine Lagarde just mentioned uh, during her speech last Friday. And what was new is not the the issue itself, but the fact that Christine Lagarde mentioned it. Uh, as she's a very uh, influential I mean, person. Uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, but that idea is not quite new. In fact, it follows the uh, the creation and, and the, the quite large success in a way of the banking union since more than 10 years now. And the idea that follow for, I mean, that time was to create uh, something similar in terms of market. So uh, not not only a banking union, but a capital market union. And um, when she was mentioning a U.S.-style uh, SEC, for example, she was referring to that, meaning that like we have for banks with a, a unique regulation, a unique uh, supervisor through the ECB uh, single system um, supervision, she wanted to, uh, to make sure that we can have something similar in terms of market, meaning a uh, she called for a single rule book in terms of market regulation, mm-hmm. which is not the case currently because currently we do have as many, well, nearly as many market regulation as we have countries in Europe. And also she asked for a unique supervisor like the ECC in the US, uh, something that would be a market regulator in Europe, just like the ECB is now the banking regulator for European banks. So a lot of people have been talking about that this year is the year of which Europe's regulators kind of started paying attention and moved in on cryptocurrencies. Do you, do you agree with that? It's because this regulation came into force in 2023, but in fact, the uh, EU financial package dated from 2020. And of course, this regulation on marketing crypto asset is, uh, is very important. And uh, it provides a, a kind of broad overview of a broad obligation for both issuers of crypto asset and also crypto asset service providers. And it covers a lot of different issues like transparency, disclosure, authorization, supervision. And the objective in doing that for the EU Commission is to provide legal certainty and to address compliance challenges and and global implication of those assets for, for banks and for users. So that's very important because I guess it's a is the first uh, regulation uh, that applied to that type of assets in Europe and maybe in the world. And uh, it will be the first um, uh, institution to provi- to try to provide legal certainty. In fact, uh, 
Uh, and it, it's very important. It's a great step forward in uh, providing security for all participants. Mm. Interesting. So I guess that's why we can say that 2023, uh, the European regulators discover in a way crypto assets, <laughs> just because they provide for a framework mm. uh, which you can operate and uh, and provide services in that type of assets. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It seems like, it seems like Mike has been sort of universally welcomed by um by a lot of people in the industry. But I wanted to have my final question. I mean, we all know, although the, the UK is uh, very close to Europe and does business with Europe, they, we are no longer part of the European Union. Uh, and we had a story um, uh, a while ago, and this is another story, uh, looking at how the UK ditching the banker bonus cap. I think we had an infamous headline about the banker bonus scrap cap, <laughs> a, a tongue twister. Um, what do you think of the, the, the UK's moves in this direction? It's really a competitive issue. Um, it's um, and I remember when the Europe put in place that cap, which was that you can't have bonuses more than twice your fixed pay. A lot of people thought it was um, something crazy. And and I mean, interestingly, at that time I was uh, I was a regulator. I was on the other side of the fence, and I was part of uh, defining this regulation. And uh, the objective was to make sure that we could provide the right incentives to market participants in order not to have uh, people like traders, for example, be too much short term focus. Because sometimes when you do a, a market trade, I mean, short term, it can be very profitable, but longer term, it cannot be uh, that much profitable for, for, the, for the bank or the institution. So the objective was to provide, to align the incentives for both the, the, the employer and the employee, the trader, and also to make sure that you engage in the right culture within within a bank. So that it was found that it was a way to, uh, to I mean, to protect that culture and incentives. But then, in fact, it, uh, I mean, it, it became a really competitive issue because you don't have that type of cap in the US, for example. And if you want to attract talent, if you want to provide, and that's very important for banks that are operating worldwide, so competing with the uh, U.S. firms, if you want to attract people, you need to be able to provide the same, I mean, a competitive remuneration. And uh, when you are blocked with this uh, cap, in fact, if you want to offer the same type of final remuneration to, uh, to someone, you need to increase the fixed pay because the, the cap is uh, is twice the fixed pay. So in fact, it um, it, it provided a competitive disadvantage in a way uh, to non-US banks. So I think that was the reason why uh, UK decided to remove that cap. That being said, and uh, I guess it's uh, very high in the uh, in the mind of the UK regulator and the PRA, it's very important for them to make sure that in fact we don't give the wrong message in terms, uh, once more, of incentives and culture. Mm. Because the incentive is really to make sure that people are not too short-term focused and focusing on what they earn in, in, uh, in the real, uh, mm. in, in very short term. So it's, it's, it's a good move in terms of competition, but needs to be very careful in terms of culture and incentives. Yeah, no, interesting. It's one to watch. Um, so, excellent. So now we're going to start uh, having comments on stories live on the banker side. Are you ready for that, Sylvie? Yeah. Excellent. So the first story um, we're looking at is uh, by our investment banking editor, Michael Climes. And this is why banks struggle, struggle to report capital markets fossil fuel activity. And there's not a week goes by that an NGO doesn't um, complain that banks are not reporting on uh, their uh, involvement with 
fossil fuels. But banks banks say that it's more complicated than this. Uh, banks have alleged are reluctant to uh, to uh, the, the NGOs allege that banks are reluctant to disclose comprehensive emission reports on the capital market side of their businesses. These are known as facilitated emissions as opposed to financed emissions. The latter are easier to understand and measure. For example, a bank that lends money directly to an oil company to build a pipeline, but harder to grasp are facilitated emissions where a transaction such as an initial public offering of an oil major is underwritten indirectly through the capital markets. What do you, what do you think of this? What are your comments on this? Well, first of all, you just said it. It's mm-hmm. uh, to, I mean, to make, uh, I mean, to make more transparent all data related to loans that you finance when you're a bank. I mean, it's easy because you do have the information. Much more complicated for a public offering, for example, mm-hmm. underwriting any underwriting activities. So it's much complicated to uh, to know exactly what is your share. And uh, so I guess that's the first reason why banks maybe have been. Uh, a little slow in try of disclosing that uh, that type of uh, of data. Uh, at the same time, I guess uh, because in fact all those disclosure it, it's very important for them in terms of communication. What what do they do in terms of uh, providing financing or not uh, in order to foster the transition and and the green economy? And I guess they are quite afraid of uh, how it can be understood. Uh, and um, I think it's very. I mean. It all depends your starting point. You can you cannot look at uh, uh, either a loan or underwriting for for a company that is issuing that um, that that uh, make that issue in in certain part of the world. I mean, if you take for example countries like uh, or continent like Africa, your starting point is very different uh, than uh, a, con- a company in UK or France, for example. And what is important in order to make sure that your financing help the transition is that really it helps the transition. So you need to be careful of your starting point, meaning that if you are a country where the most frequent energy is coal, if you move to gas, it is a progress. Mm -hmm. So as a bank, when you finance that move, I mean, you finance a transition towards the green uh, energy. But if you are financing a company, for example, in in UK uh, and where... I mean, the, the, the environment is not cold. I mean, so in fact, the starting point, it's really important. It, it, what is important is not the end point, is a transition. You need to help company. And as a bank, you need to be part of it in your financing. You need to help company to make progress to, towards more green. But it, it, it's very important to focus not on the end point, but on the transition. And mm. that, I think, it's, it's something that is not easy to explain not easy to disclose and not easy to make that understood. And to be honest, the recent uh, EU regulation don't help much in that respect because they're really, if you take the taxonomy, for example, it's really a, a view of uh, what you are currently, but it doesn't take into account how you can move from point A to point B. And I think that is important. And I guess that may explain why banks might be more reluctant to provide some data. So first is complicated. Then you need to make sure that you are, you make that clearly understandable. Yeah, it it is a complicated subject. I mean, this story also cites a report from Share Action in the UK and the Sierra Club in the US um, that adds that many banks 
fossil fuel exclusion policies apply only to lending, which leaves a massive 2.7 trillion loophole for banks that do not include underwriting yes. in their client policies. So yeah, it is it is it is quite a complicated issue. Green financing is not only about loan. In mm. fact, uh, everything that banks provide to finance the economy that goes through uh, not only through traditional banking business but also through capital market activities. You're absolutely right, and. Um, even if it's more complicated, there, there must be a way to, uh, to disclose it, Ayori. Mm. So I'm going to move on to our, our next story. And this is from one of our reporters, Alia Shibley. This is Fragmentation Arrests EU Capital Markets Development. Three decades on from the establishment of the single market, Europe's capital markets are failing to keep up with rivals, specifically it lags behind the U.S. and the U.K. It also says the Capital Markets Union Initiative has made little medium-term progress with declining initial public offerings and greater harmonization and collaboration among EU member states is essential. So, Davide, I wanted to bring you in now to get a, a comment on this uh, before I move on to Sylvie. What, what do you think of this story? Yes, hi. So the bottom line is that, uh, yes, uh, EU capital markets are severely underperforming this year. And this this is, of course, part due to uh, their fragmentation. Um, you know, an example of which is the differences in funding costs for firms in different EU countries. Um, and currently, as we said, that the EU is behind both the US and the UK in terms of competitiveness of the capital markets. And, you know, in terms of global IPOs, volume alone um, in the EU, um, it has fallen to 7% of the global market compared mm. to 20% just a few years ago. And um, I it's think a big this drop. Yeah. yeah, a very big drop. And I think that these performance issues come from the fact that the market is more competitive and the EU block still um, hasn't come to term with the changes. Um, because now competitive, uh, the, the competition is not just coming from the U.S., but also from Asian countries, developing Asian countries like China and India. And this, of course, um, this lack of, lack of competitiveness is affecting businesses uh, that cannot access the financing that they need to implement major changes in their system, like digitalization or decarbonization, which are two major trends at the moment. And of course, on the bank side, this also affects their operations because because banks become less willing to grant riskier loans uh, in an environment where capital markets are just not thriving enough. Hmm. What do you think, Sylvie? Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. I think it, it comes back to your first question about uh, what Christine Lagarde was saying last week. Mm. In fact, capital market union is, is something that would be very important and it's even crucial for Europe if he wants to uh, to regain some competitivity in terms of, uh, of market financing. And the first thing to have a capital market union is first to have a, a market. And the problem, what means, what is a market? The market is same rule that you have, I mean, things that can be sell or, or exchanged in, according to the same rule on the same type of uh, platforms with liquidity. I mean, liquidity is very fragmented in Europe just because the rules are not the same everywhere. And uh, if you want to have an active capital market, you need to have some liquidity pool that enables uh, issuers and, and buyers to, uh, to, to find what they, they are looking for. So, in fact, it's very important that Europe makes some progress in that respect, because otherwise, I mean, the trend that we've, uh, that we've seen uh, recently is it's just going to, uh, to widen. Uh, because as the, um, uh, the my producer was saying, I mean, the, 
the 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 Asian market has co are coming into the mm. competition very actively again. So it, it's it's really very important for Europe. If he really wants to be competitive, it needs to have a real capital market union, which means that first it has to have a market. Same rules and one or maybe one supervisor like Christine Lagarde was uh, was mentioning last week. I mean, maybe uh, something like give more power to ESMA, for example, mm. and try to make ESMA much more looking like the SEC with some direct supervisory powers and some market participants, for example. But that's um, and and uh, and every country's reluctance must be uh, must be fought because uh, otherwise, I mean, everybody's going to lose. Every country in Europe is going to lose if they don't manage to agree on what is needed to create a more integrated capital market. Mm. So in the interest of time, I'm going to skip our next story. We were going to talk about the legal minefield of off-channel communications with WhatsApp, but I'm going to skip that because we're going to move off the banker site. I know it's boo hiss. We should never do that, but we're not going far. Um, well, we're, going, we're, not, we're not going that far. A story in the FT, many stories in the FT and the New York Times and People magazine probably in uh, a six-part dramatization on Netflix coming soon. So we're going to be talking about um, OpenAI right at the moment and the ousting of their CEO. Now, it's interesting. I was speaking to a, um, a tech guy at a, a bank last week, and he said, you know, it, people often comment AI, artificial intelligence, has been around for quite a long time, decades and decades. But the past year has seen this massive acceleration of, of projects and experiments because of large language models, which lies at the heart of chat GTP, which was unleashed by OpenAI uh, earlier this year. So now this is um, a bit of drama with the board uh, uh, ousting their CEO. About almost 500 people in the company are, have signed a letter saying they will leave with him. So they might. this might be the, uh, the, the cheapest merger and acquisition Microsoft has ever made. They didn't have to spend a dime and got the entire company. Um, so yeah, so what do you, what do you, this is just, I'm, I want to get some popcorn for this to, to hear. I'm, I'm updating my, my, uh, my, my PC every five minutes to get a, a new update on what's going on with open AI. But how, how are you viewing this, Sylvie? Well, it's, uh, yes, I was like you reading that in newspaper all weekend. I mean, that's really, really incredible what happened and a very smart move from Microsoft, to be honest. Huh? Because mm. as you say, that's going to be the cheapest acquisition uh, <laughs> uh, they could have ever made. And uh, yes, I was uh, understanding that this, uh, I mean, a lot of people are, are looking to follow their, uh, to, to, to follow and to, uh, to go to Microsoft as well. So it's, um, it's interesting when you see the reason of the uh, of, of the of the dispute in a way because there was uh, uh, I mean the the former CEO was accused to be too commercial. I mean, yeah, I think that I think that was what was the heart of it is that OpenAI originally was a nonprofit, and of course we have a lot of discussions in the industry right now about the ethics of AI and and the impact it's going to have on the wider society. But of course, it also represents a $15 trillion market opportunity, and you always have to follow the money. So, yes, yeah, so I think this was a, a very much a kind of a, a fight between that commercial and that, you know, maybe their their earlier uh, nonprofit ethos. Mm. So that's, that's what makes it very interesting, because, in fact, as you said, you can easily understand that's follow the money, that's, I mean, that's a rule of uh, capitalism. And mm. uh, But then it's interesting to think about it. I mean, do you really, are you... Is it possible to make sure that one, I mean, 
an ingenious invention like what we have with AI currently can be uh, restricted in a way in order not, mm. not to develop all its potential because of ethic reason. I mean, that's, that's Pandora's box. It's either open or it's yeah. closed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's, that's really fascinating, to be honest. Uh, aside from the, the story of what happened this weekend and the mm. story of persons that are involved in it, but the, the I mean, the struggle be between, in fact, this invention that uh, go, I mean, has a life in itself in a way and goes too quick and too uh, uh, and too important to make sure that it can stay in the book. Uh, using your metaphor. Mm. So, what do you think, Davide? No, no, I agree. I agree. There's definitely like a lot of interesting news coming up from Silicon Valley at the moment, and um, and I also think I can't wait to get the Netflix documentary coming soon. <laughs> hopefully, actors are sending in their CVs now. Yeah, <laughs> good thing that the strike is over. <laughs> but I I agree that um, it's still a, it feels like it's still a developing um, story because. Mm. Although he was, yes, he was hired by Microsoft recently, but it seems Instead like... Instead of going off to do his own startup. See, that's yes. interesting. I find that really interesting that he went to a... It does. It does. I mean, big tech. he must have got a good offer, but also because Microsoft has always been like a major investor in OpenAI, and it seemed like the two, the mm. Microsoft CEO and uh, Altman had good relationship. So... Um, yeah, it's interesting to see the developments because we're seeing a lot of employees um, that are threatening to quit the company uh, or to to move to other uh, tech companies um, in the region. So, um, and investors, there's also like, a, of course, like the threat of uh, potential um, investors or stakeholders deciding to either reconsider or scale down their ties with the open AI uh, if Sam Altman is not going to be the CEO anymore. Mm. So it's a very interesting time to observe this from the outside, not from the inside, but from the outside. <laughs> it's definitely a very interesting thing to, to look at. Popcorn and champagne everywhere. All right, so our final story is a bit, uh, bit of a fun, a fun story, um, sort of at the, the, at the heart of kind of the last 10, 15 years of fintech revolution has been the rise of challenger banks and neobanks. And one of the most famous in the UK is Monzo which was uh, kind of started alongside um, Starling and, and, and a few other banks in the UK. But they've just recently, um, a story has come out, which is um, cited to sources in Sky News. So this is um, Alphabet-backed fund, uh, which is part of it, you know, Google, or is it's Alphabet is Google, or Google's... Uh, yes. I should know the answer to that. Fund uh, Capital G is in talks to acquire a stake in Monzo as part of a funding round that could raise up to $500 million at a £4 billion pound valuation for the UK Digital Bank. This is according to Sky News. Um, I'm interested because I just want to know what they're going to use the money for. Where are they going? I know they tried to launch in the other countries and move around. What, what do you think is the next? Anyone have any view of the future of Monzo? They're going to open a bank in Antarctica. I don't know. <laughs> what are they using that money for? What do you think? There's a lot of uh, possibilities. Um, Antarctica, I don't know how many customers they will get there, but... <laughs> there are. It has a population of about 20. They're all, like, I mean, researchers. Yeah. Anyway. If they all are going to open, like, uh, bank accounts, mm -hmm. I guess. And <laughs> I, I would love to see an ATM just, like, uh, in, in, a in a glacier. <laughs> so, Sylvia, if you ran a bank that was valued at $4 billion, what what would you use $500 million for? I've been very amazed in a way by the success of those neobank, challenger bank. In a very short period of time, they seem to grow very quickly. 
And but at one point, and until I mean the 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 beginning of the growth is okay because they're starting from nothing and then they are still below the radar. But when they mm -hmm. reach a certain level of customers, a certain size, then they get into the radars and and the yeah. regulators. Um, customer began to look at it more carefully. So I guess maybe what I would do if I had that money, if I was them, maybe to use some of it um, to put in place some controls. Because when you are above the radars, then you, I mean, you need to be uh, ready to have people asking whether you did the right thing in terms of, uh, you know, know your customers, things like that. Mm. So maybe improve controls. Yeah, I mean, Monzo is on our list of the bankers' top 1,000 banks. So it's in, it's getting up there into those banks you pay attention to. Excellent. Sylvie, thank you so much for joining us on the Banker Midweek. You were you were a delight. Thank you so much. And thank you, Davide. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.